Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey there team, Oliver here. This week I interview Richard Thorpe, CEO of GoCycle. GoCycle, the world's premier folding electric bike manufacturer. And Richard has been at the game longer than most, starting to work on this project back in the early 2000s. In this episode, we dig into the history of the company, why folding matters in a multimodal future, and the importance of vehicle weight. It's an exciting episode, and I'm really, really stoked that we managed to get Richard on. I've been a fan of GoCycle for years. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did. In the meantime, the next Micromobility America conference is now scheduled for the 23rd of September, 2021. It'll be at Pier 70 in San Francisco and have more than 50 top speakers from the industry, more than 1,000 global participants, and hundreds of startups and brands represented. If you love this space and want to find your tribe here, head to micromobility.io to find out more details. And with that, this is the episode with Richard. Let's go. All right, and welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today Richard Thorpe. How are you doing today, Richard? I'm doing very well, thank you. Excellent. And where are you joining from today? From the UK, headquarters here in Chessington. It's about 10 miles south of the center of London. Excellent, excellent. Well, look, I'm incredibly excited to have you on. This particular vehicle we're going to talk about today, the Go Cycle, is one that I've noted for a number of years as being one that I admire from a design perspective. Almost decades, even. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, it is at this point. Look, what I thought would probably be quite useful for the audience is for those who don't know what the Go Cycle is, can you just t- kind of take us through what the vehicle is itself? And then and then we can dig into the history and how it came to be and all that sort of thing. I'd say right now, Go Cycle is probably the leading electric folding bike in the market. And its yep. philosophy has been about clean design so that when you bring the product into your house or your flat or wherever you're storing it, you don't get any grease on your carpet, on your clothes. So the product is fantastic to ride and is very easy to live with. Putting it in your car, using it for intermodal transport alternatives, all that kind of stuff. I mean, the thing that I loved about it was it's an incredibly slick design. So as you say, it doesn't have any kind of exposed chains or anything like that, but it's also just, a, I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And as you say, as you mentioned, it's a folding bike. So it folds right down to something that is easily carryable onto a train and things like that. So can you take me through, because the only other people that I know of in this space really are like Brompton, which is also another UK company. Probably probably the best folding bike in the world. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, look, credit where credit's due. The thing that it kind of strikes me about this is that it's quite a unique, you know, I can imagine a lot of the audience who we have who's American won't have seen folding bikes before. I feel like it's quite a UK driven phenomenon. You know, I, I don't know. I'd love to learn more about the kind of the general folding bike market. Like where do these typically get sold? What, you know, why is it UK driven? I think you've touched on exactly the inspiration that I had to get into the space. So I was living in central London I left McLaren cars to start the company in 2002. I was commuting to McLaren on a single speed diamond frame, getting on the train, riding both sides. I had that and another mountain bike stolen in central London, even though that was locked up in underground parking with CCTV cameras. 
And I got to the point where I was kind of finished. I was done. I was like, I want a really awesome bike to ride. I want it to fit me. I want it to be comfortable. I want there to be no compromise to the way it, it feels when you ride, the geometry, the way it handles. But I also, and this is the key, don't want to compromise on its security. I want it with me all the time. Yeah. I don't want to have to lock it up outside. I don't want to have to worry about it. I want to take it up the elevator into my flat and have it there as a no compromise approach. And that really is the philosophy behind GoCycle from the beginning. It basically says, look, if you're having a product for urban usage or recreational usage and it doesn't fold, that to me is a compromise design. If you're looking for a Tour de France racer that folds, well, that would be a compromise. But from the city perspective, from the urban rider perspective, from even a recreational rider perspective and a sustainable, healthy transport perspective, the thing's got to fold. If it doesn't, it's a compromise. And that's the philosophy of GoCycle. It's a no compromise approach to both the riding and the fit of the product and also the total convenience that only comes from a folding bike where you can put it in your car. My son rides a GoCycle to school. You know, if there's some problem, if he has to stay late or there's some terrible weather or something, you know, you've got the convenience of picking him up and just putting the product in the boot of the car. You know, mm -hmm. if you're, well, you, you can nearly go to pubs here in the, in the UK, but you know, if you're at a pub and you've had too much to drink and someone wants to pick you up, you can put your go cycle in the back. There's all of that convenience that comes when you don't compromise on that aspect of a product. There's as much thought gone into the product as it's used when you're not riding it as when you're riding it. And that's a mm. big difference from a lot of designers out there. They're producing a bicycle just to ride where I've produced a bicycle because I've been living with it for, you know, I've been living with bicycles for a very long time. Yeah. You know, my co-host has a great quote about how, you know, the best camera is the one that you have with you. And so the idea that you can bring, I will give you an example. I lived in a house where I didn't have enough space for an electric bike. I ended up with an electric scooter because I just couldn't get it. And I, you know, you're saying all these things and I go, I, I totally could have had a go cycle because it would have fit into the house. It just, I couldn't fit a full size one. And so that's a very interesting approach. And certainly from a micromobility perspective, when we think about what the products enable, you've also got something that's quite highly performant. So I would love to, you know, you've just released the new bike, G4. Yep. Do you want to just take us through what that, in terms of performance, how that stacks up? Sure. The G4 is probably the most significant uplift in a generational model that we've produced ever. Where we focused most of the attention is after we released our fast folding range about two years ago with the GX, we focused our attention on our drive system. So we wanted to provide more low-end torque and startup assistance on hills than mm -hmm. previous models without any compromise to either changing the packaging size. So for instance, you know, just making it bigger, putting on a bigger motor or, or whatnot, or any increase in the weight. So that was a pretty challenging brief because the GX is, is one of the lightest electric folding bikes on the market. So now we're saying, right, we wanna add some torque here but you can't make it any bigger and you can't make it any heavier. And that's taken a classic GoCycle approach, looking at the whole product, the whole system. So we've engineered a new lightweight uh, mid-frame, which is all carbon, the new motor drive there, and including that, a new front fork, which is all, all carbon. 
We also had a new controller. We've moved to a 36 volt battery system. We've got a, a simple feature, but it's probably my favorite feature. It's a little USB charger on there now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm always fighting with my family for this charging pirates in our household. I've now got one area where I can be guaranteed I can go and find a source of charge yes. for my phone. So that's really neat. There's been a lot of under the skin stuff also for the future. For instance, we moved to low energy Bluetooth for our app. GoCycle was the first production e-bike in the world in 2012 with our G2 that had Bluetooth as standard. We've now improved that with the low energy Bluetooth, which gives a bit better connection with various types of phones. In terms of things like range and speed, so it tops out at 32, I would assume? Like yeah, your, US spec yep. is 20 miles an hour, EU spec is 25 kph. Yep. We've got, in terms of the range, range is so much about stats on a piece of paper. We have very few, if ever, a customer is complaining about range. So it's not been a big driver for us. The key point of GoCycle is, is weight. And we've been able to literally take a kilo off our existing range, which is not easy. You know, we're getting down, I think in the future, we might get below 16 kilos for a product that's able to take you, you know, 20 miles, 20 miles an hour and fold up and be comfortable with full lighting, mud guards, front pannier, rear pannier, you know, the works. Mm. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's certainly, you know, as I learn more about what requirements someone would have. Right? So Horace's framing and, and the kind of the framing for disruptive innovation is always what's the job to be done of the consumer, right? So I think the solution by the sounds of things for you is you want to have the job to be done is I want it to be the default vehicle that kind of ends up connecting everything else. So it allows me to go from one place to another. But then if I need to go from another place to another on a train or in a car or wherever, it can also go with me as a piece of equipment. And, and certainly from a, you know, like hopping on trains, I assume the UK, there are limitations on, because there are certainly where I live as well, about the size of the vehicle. Yeah. So you yeah. can't bring a full size bike on a packed commuter train in the morning, but you can bring, I mean, I can bring my electric scooter. I assume you can bring one of these just as long as Yeah, I mean, there's up, always right? limitations like on some, some of the underground, but when you start to own a product like this, you start to think, right, this is actually instead of the train, you know, there's your range just expands hugely in terms of what you think you can do on a product. And when you start looking at time door to door, you know, even through through London, you know, on trains, it's still, you know, it's a long journey. You can skip mm. many parts of your journey on, on an e-bike, which is one of their transformative qualities. We talk about our greater mission of getting more and more people to choose healthy and sustainable transport alternatives. You know, we've got our e-bike miles program with our company where we pay our staff a pound a mile to commute in on, on an e-bike. But one of the neat parts about GoCycle is that it goes beyond utility. It's a product that, yeah, if you're going to the shops and back or the school run or commuting on it, for whatever reason, it's a fun experience. I mean, electric bikes are fun to begin with, but the GoCycle just has something special about it. There's always going to be someone that you know, stops, takes a look, asks you about it. It makes people smile. It's a very special product in that regard. So I want to understand more about its background because, you know, you, as you said, you, you left McLaren to start the company in 2002, which feels like a long time ago because we only really, I feel like micromobility as we have been looking at it, we're really thinking about what's emerged with e-mopeds in the kind of mid 2000s in China through to the kind of the kick scooters. 
but I didn't even think about e-bikes in the start of the 2000s. So what were they like back when you started this? And what was the insight for you around why you thought this was going to be an interesting space? So I do this kind of talk on e-bike 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. I think we're in e-bike 3.0 right now. And I think we're probably in the next few years, we might enter e-bike 4.0. When I started and I left McLaren in 2002, we were in e-bike 1.0. And e-bike 1.0 was basically, you know, China invented the e-bike, okay? It was a low-cost form of transport, lead-acid battery, big motor, very efficient and utilitarian-based. Because of the fundamental benefits of these things, quiet, sustainable transport, get you from A to B without breaking a sweat, they started to filter over to Europe in the Chinese form. Okay, there were some Japanese product also, the Yamahas and the early EPAC systems came over. But fundamentally, these things were very, very heavy, very low tech, but still they had that core e-bike quality, as I said, of A to B electric. When we did some early marketing work on GoCycle and trying to figure out what it was that makes e-bikes fun, we came to the conclusion that it was the gene in people's brains that was connected with the accelerator in a car. Yes. It was the power aspect. And when you felt that power on the e-bike, it lit up the same part of your brain that when you push the gas on a car and you go vroom down the road that, that people get excited about. So that fundamental part, I think, is what was getting the early e-bike 1.0s to be successful, despite how heavy and horrible they were. Even in the US, you know, you had pioneers like Lee Iacocca, who was way before for his time trying to sell e-bikes through car dealerships. I mean, can you imagine if he was doing that now? He'd, he'd, be, he'd probably be hugely successful. But, you know, the e-bike... I e remember that whole story. I only discovered it probably about a year ago mm -hmm. when someone pointed out that they'd tried to do this and how mad it was. Yeah. <laughs> From a business perspective, yeah. it was it was ludicrous. Like, of course, the dealerships weren't going to try and sell a thing that was this. But, you know, was it GM yeah. or Ford? Forgive me. Chrysler. Chrysler, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was e-bike 1.0. And, and what I could see is I'd always been involved in bicycle design, but, you know, GoCycle is the most traditional bike I've ever designed. Most of my other stuff was just wacky recumbents and other, other kind of things as a hobby. But mm. I could see that, you know, I was living in London. I was commuting on bikes. Like I said, I had a couple of bikes stolen. I had a long history in understanding composites and how to make things quickly and make things lightweight and strong and good contacts in the motor racing industry on finite element analysis and all that sort of stuff. So I said, right, you know, if I took my skill set in lightweight structure and my background in all the many years I had with recumbent design and bicycle design and things like that, and I combined that with what I could see was coming, which was this electric drive, you know, that's... I could do this. So originally I started out as, okay, I'm going to put the designer's cap on. I'm going to design some prototypes. I'm going to make them. And then I'm going to license them to some company to build and produce on a license basis. And that was really the start. You know, I built probably three or four prototypes. I made them all out of composite, quickly found out they were way too expensive. You know, start to go to bicycle manufacturers. I was way before way ahead of the curve like mm. you know i consider myself a pioneer in the industry i'm probably 10 years too early uh, better yeah. to be too early than too late but those were tough years you know when no one even the bike industry is not interested in e-bikes you know i remember having to design the first go cycle where the electric drive was completely detachable 
So I would go and do a demo to a bike dealer to try and, you know, get a sense of if this was a compelling product to then go back to a bike manufacturer and say, hey, this is what this dealer said. Mm. And of course, there's no direct sales then with both bikes, really. I would show up with the super lightweight carbon go cycle, the first one, XP2, I think it was, and I would have the motor off. And so I would have them ride it and they would appreciate it as a bicycle, very lightweight. It had this, the clean drive, so no cover chain. It had the classic go cycle side mounted wheels, lots of innovation just in that. And then I would quickly say, oh, and you can get this go faster pack. And you pop in the battery and you pop on the motor and then they'd have a go and go, wow, that's awesome. So it was having to break down and modulize the product because the market just was not ready for it. You know, hindsight's twenty mm. twenty, where I should have just forgotten, forget about all of that and just have the thing as it ended up where it was an electric folding bike completely. But but I imagine that the, the part of that journey as well was the quality of the componentry and, the, you know, I can imagine the early batteries because lithium ion back in what? Yeah, nickel, middle and, nickel yeah, nickel yeah exactly. It would have yeah. been all terrible. I mean, not terrible, yeah. terrible, but, you know, you might, how, what was the, I mean, I can imagine the range on those things in the early days would have been not very much at all, right? We have 375 watt hours now. Back then we had 160 nickel metal oh, hydride. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Is it, but you, have you just come in the sense of you've made the batteries smaller relatively to what they were in back The batteries then? actually, you know, it's always been in the frame. So the size is about the same. It's just that the density, power density has gone up. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised it's only that much actually. You, you don't think it's that much? No, 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 no. I'm surprised it is only that much that the power density between nickel hydride and, and lithium ion that's two today is only, you know, that you'd have what, a doubling or just over a doubling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. So that was sort of the start of GoCycle. You know, I left my job at McLaren Cars and went on this licensing business model. And I did all the bike shows. I did all the cold calling you know, the, it's quite a brutal job when you rock up to a booth at a bike show with your new fancy gizmo and you've got to ferret your way through and try and find someone there that will talk to you and someone that's a decision maker. And, you know, it, in, after a year and a half, I'd actually gotten to all the top people in the top companies and at least had my little moment, you know, to show my widget. And pretty much everyone loved the product you know, that was clear. But, you know, at the time it was moved on from carbon, it was going to be all magnesium. And then, you know, it was outside of their supply chain. It was not material they've used before. The thing was so different. And it was just, you could imagine in their heads, they were going, wow, this is a great thing. But, you know, this is going to take a lot of money to get this thing going into production. Which year would have this been? This was like 2004, 2005. Wow, okay. Yeah. yeah. So... After that, pretty much universal rejection, you know, it was like, well, raise our own money privately and we're going to do the things that people, the bicycle industry were scared of. So at the time, it was all the magnesium wheels, magnesium frame, magnesium clean drive. You know, there was, you know, half a million dollars worth of production tooling just to see if it worked. You know, it was in an automotive supply chain using the thixo molded process, which, you know, it wasn't even die casting, right? It was like special machines. There were only two companies in the world that could, that at the time that could make it. So we said, look, we'll raise private investment and we'll take all the risk out of this for you. 
we'll make the production tooling and then we'll try and partner with a bicycle company to actually manufacture it. And that actually worked. We, I didn't pick number one or two, I picked number three at the time, a bicycle company. And it was a good relationship, you know, it was a good, so I went through my own, you know, spent another year writing business plans and, you know, a year of being rejected, honing, refining, rejected, honing, refining, you know, until eventually, you know, it's all practice for the big day, as I say, until the mm. big day comes and, and you're able to close a funding round, which we did with angel investors, which allowed us to get the product tooling made and get off the ground. And, but that was just the beginning of more challenges. <laughs> so, you know, it would be, you know, back and forth to Taiwan, trying to get the thing going. And then you build what we call the first 200 breakthrough go cycles. That was the objective. And after the first 200 were made, there was a big challenge within the company that we worked with, the, the bike company and a big management change. And the whole plan just basically went out the window and instead of having a bike company to make it, we had to make it ourselves. Like literally in the UK, we made the first 3,000, which, which required, you know, some real goodwill from the investors that had come on board. And basically, you know, setting up your own factory. Okay, it wasn't our own, but it was our own factory within another company. Yeah, and uh, then finally in 2009, you know, we were able to launch the first G1 which by then e-bikes, it was in e-bike 2.0, where you could start seeing companies in Europe actually making lighter product. There were, you know, the first pioneers like GoCycle and, you know, there were others like A2B and you know, other, other companies that were starting to sell e-bikes. And uh, that was, yeah, so that was the launch of the G1 in 2009 mm. at the uh, gadget show in, in the UK. I can imagine a, a great time to finally get things into market during the global financial crisis as well. Oh, yes, that hit. So talk me through. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that thing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, like, the one thing that resounds every time I talk to folks who build bikes is that there's, it's just a brutal game. You know, it's vehicle manufacturing. There's just orders of magnitude of risk through the supply chain and all that sort of stuff. And then I also think about, you know, obviously the funding market for micromobility at the moment in particular is very hot. And it's, you know, you see, I don't think it's still as hot as it will get, you know, as we head into it, especially when you look at kind of the market for electric vehicles and how that's going at the moment. But talk me through the fundraising journey as well. As you said, you had some angels and then how it's been to try and manufacture things. Do you still manufacture everything in the UK? So to answer your last one, we bring in parts globally and we are still procuring all the items ourselves. And these are bespoke design product tooling. We own all the tooling. We are actually still working with the same company that we started with, although we left them for a period when they had their management fallout and we came back to them. So the product is assembled for us in Poland. We are responsible for getting all the parts in there. We have our own bespoke production line there, all of our own tooling but effectively it's an outsourced assembly process but yeah the funding journey boy it's it's been long i remember some funny geez some funny things god in the early days i mean when you're looking for money you know you look anywhere you know you've got people that say they've got cash and briefcases you know and you call your accountant up and you say so I may have an investor here but he'll wanted to deposit the cash 
in our account, and and you hear the accountant just about fall on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> you know, say, Richard, 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 look, if anyone deposits more than a thousand, uh, nine thousand pounds in cash in any UK bank account, that's going to trigger the fraud squad or whatever. You know, yeah. so it's it's all manner of things like that. But you know, you you realize you've got everything together when actually, you know, the deal's done and you've got people doing due diligence and lawyers and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. One of the first rounds was definitely very challenging. We had a great sort of meeting. Um, there were about 10 or 12 people that were interested. We got very quickly oversubscribed. And then, you know, there were some counter offers and you kind of feel really good about the whole thing. And then someone in the group wanted a bit more control than he felt they needed. And then they threatened to pull out with their little group of people. And, you know, the whole thing's going to fall apart. And then you've got to, you know, go around and try and uh, pick up the pieces. But, yeah, I think one thing's for sure. I mean, obviously, there's a lot to do with an entrepreneur's drive to keep things moving. But there's also something with special about this product that I said before. You know, yeah. when the chips have been down with this company, the product is still there. <laughs> There's still nothing like it. You take it outside and people like it, you know, everything about it. It's like it's just this feel good, unique, special thing. Mm. And I'm very, very grateful that uh, I've been a part of it. Totally. And so how much capital have you raised in total throughout the journey of GoCycle? A lot. Yes. Like a lot. Yeah. I mean, you know. It's nearly 20 years and we've developed now four models. Development is not cheap. Tooling's not cheap. You know, for those in manufacturing and if you look at some of the other companies out there, I would say this, you could go and look at some of some other recent companies that have raised a lot of money and the amount of money that we've raised is substantially less, but we've probably had significantly more technology and development and R&D involved. So, you know, on that basis, we are probably very, very capital efficient, yeah. even though we've raised a significant amount. And, and take me through, because I know that you've got a, like a, you're looking at setting up a Euro, European subsidiary or you have set up a European subsidiary. Yes. Yeah, yeah can you, can you set up, yeah. Yeah, can you talk me through, the, you know, that part of the business? We knew at some point in time, as our business grew, we would have a European service center and European sales office, support office. And that was just going to be as most bike companies have. You know, someone once said I was working with said, even though the UK is part of Europe, it has a body of water between it. So it's always going to be different. So, you know, at some point we were going to set that, set that up. Then Brexit came along and, you know, I've had a view, look, we'll deal with it one way or the other. Doesn't matter to me. But we took the view that we were just going to wait for certainty. You know, we're not going to get involved in the last minute negotiation of governments. And as soon as that was settled, we made our move. We said, OK, we now know that there's going to be some friction at the border. We need to avoid the border. So we immediately set up a Dutch subsidiary in Holland. I think Netherlands is probably a big winner in Brexit. They've probably got, you know, a lot of UK companies setting up there. Yeah. So we did that and we've got our warehouse up and running now. So we're shipping there and we're just shortlisting our service center in Amsterdam. So it's kind of exciting. You know, we've got an office in, in the US and obviously the UK and, and now Europe. 
So Brexit has really just forced our hand and pulled all of that forward. It's been tough. It's a bit of a perfect storm at the moment. You know, supply chain troubles due to shutdowns and all that sort of stuff with coronavirus, plus Brexit, plus this infinite demand for the infinite and the unavailable in the market. It's a perfect storm, but it's forced everything to, to be done a lot more quickly. But it's good. It's really exciting. Yeah. And I want to talk about that because one of the things that we, you know, we talk about a lot is, for example, New Zealand. We're going to see more electric bikes and scooters sold here than we will new cars next year. And the market for electric bikes has exploded everywhere around, around the world. And I'm going to assume you benefit from that increase in demand. Can you talk me through that? And then obviously... I know, as you said, uh, it's been challenging on the supply side. So maybe just talk about, you know, how those two things have squared. Uh, yeah, grumpy customers. I think the end consumer out there, maybe a lot of people have been working from home and in the Netflix bubble. But, you know, you can't just switch off the world supply chain. And then suddenly, yeah, maybe a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people have not done well in, in this period, but a lot of people have gotten, you know, lower costs. They're still getting the same paycheck, but not commuting to work. There's, there's a feeling out there that, you know, people have some pent up resources to spend on an e-bike. And so there's a huge amount of demand, but across the board, you know, fortunately we're not the only one, but across the board, you know, we're getting quotes of, you know, 18 months, like put your order in now for late 2022 delivery. And the brutal part about production is that you can't build the thing if you don't have 100% of the components. Yeah. And if you can't get your saddle, you can't ship your product. And that's the brutal reality of production. So you end up with this horrible situation where you've paid an enormous amount of money for all your raw materials, right? But you're missing one part and it's delayed. And so you've got an enormous amount of capital tied up waiting for one part that, you know, if you could have delayed everything until that last part was coming in, it would be far more efficient. So I think it's going to be really tough, tough this year for, for everyone, despite the this amazing amount of demand that's there. Mm. I think actually a lot of bike dealers might not make it because they literally won't have product. A lot of them may not have ordered early enough. They've been caught off guard. You know, when suppliers say, hey, place your order now, they say, oh, I'll just order it later. And then they come to order it later. And I'm sorry, but we can take your order, but it'll be for late 2022 delivery. And if you don't have product as a bike dealer, you, you know, you can't run a business. Yeah, I mean, it kind of blows me away, as you say, that you're going to have so much demand and yet people will be going under simply because they can't get stock, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a very weird it's world. A, it's a weird, <laughs> weird world. I mean, we're I had a conversation right before I, I'm talking to you with one of our German suppliers and they have had their best February and March in the history of the company. And this company is a major mm. automotive supplier and they are selling equipment for camping vans and for pool covers. It's just mm. weird. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's like predict the market that's going to succeed in post-coronavirus, you know, automated pool, personal pool covers and uh, camping equipment. Because people want to just, you know, go out camping instead of going to hotels yeah. or something. I don't know. Mad. To your point around the lead times, there was a great infographic from a presentation from the head of Specialized about just, you know, literally 
every, he was pointing out all the punchery on the bike. So you've got the forks and the, the wheels and the pedals and all this. Stuff. And it's like 250 days on average for most parts. And I just, you know, as you say, it's just a brutal business, especially when you, as you say, you can't ship a bike without a saddle. What are you to do? This is the first time in, in the history of this company that I've actually thought, you know what? It's finally nice to have a supply chain that's outside the right. bicycle industry. Yeah. You know, we've always had these specialist components and everything that have always been a burden for us. And there's always been, oh, geez, if it was just a, a normal 10-speed derailleur system, we can just go to Shimano and buy it. Done. But we have to customize our Shimano gear set and everything. But we have a lot of suppliers in the bicycle industry, but a large portion that's outside is not mm. as effective. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's going to be very interesting to watch. You know, and I want to talk a bit about, you know, as you said, there's a lot of people obviously trying to buy, but you, you've you explored different options. You sell the G4, you sell your other bike models. That's sort of the way that this bike typically gets to market. Do you go through distributors? And then also, have you explored, you know, leasing and renting and other ways of getting the bikes in the hands of consumers? So having, having been at this since 2009 in the market, we've tried a lot of different routes to market. And when we launched, you know, direct sales was, was out there, but, you know, it wasn't something hugely substantial. Especially doing business in Europe is very hard because of all the different cultures and languages. So we went down a distributor type of approach. And, you know, when you're funding a company like this, you know, gold dust for you is a distributor from Germany that says, hey, I'm going to take a thousand go cycles next year and here's my order. You know, you've got, you, instantly you've got a full closed loop. You know, it's just about getting some short-term financing to go off and build the things and sell them. So distributors hold, you know, a huge amount of cachet. And we probably ended up with about five or six, maybe even 10 different distributors. And over the years, it just turned out to be the wrong move. It was a very, you know, it was a necessary point on our journey, but you would have this constant dilution of information from the distributor to then go to the bike dealer, to then go to the customer. And with the specialist unique product, it, it, it just didn't work at all. And we, over the years, we started to just exit out of those relationships. And, and actually, at the, currently, most larger bike companies are doing the same. They're either dealer direct or direct. And that's where we are now. We, we sell both direct to consumer and dealer direct. I think in the coming years, direct is going to be a bigger part. And dealers that are only focused on selling are probably going to get, they're probably going to go under. Dealers that offer that service, you know, to, to people in their local area can fix an e-bike on the spot, give it back to them. The customer doesn't have to mail it back or ship it back with all the lithium battery malarkey. They're going to do very well. But I also think, you know, with the Amazonization of the world, the, the game for return shipping and easy shipments and low-cost shipping is just raising every month or every year. And I think return to base models, you know, we'll have, we'll probably have six service centers now. We've got one in the central US in Minnesota. We've got an East Coast service center. We have our headquarters in Chessington. We'll have our 
Netherlands service center, and currently also have one in Mallorca, which is kind of a little micro market for us. So you're going to see probably more and more return to base service models building up. I think there are some other companies already trying to do that more aggressively, maybe out of a necessity because they're only direct and they don't have a dealer network they can yeah. rely on. But uh, certainly for us, yeah, we, we have those two channels that uh, we believe in. Dealers that are, offer fantastic retail experiences, they offer service and you know that direct model for those people that are not near a dealer. Yeah, I mean, the other thing as well, and this is just as I think about the buyer journey, is that the experience of going, you know, hey, you know, even back in 2003, 2005, 2010, you know, there really wasn't a good way to get a, a good, accurate assessment of a bike. And one of the things that I actually was thinking about as I, you know, you, uh, your team sent over the, the details beforehand. You want to know where I, uh, where I got really excited about watching the go, about go cycle and about talking to you was Matt Watson yeah. doing his review of his GX. Oh, that's, that's like one of the best reviews out there. He, he has an amazing way of, of telling a story. I mean, that's a great video. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and for folks who don't know who Matt Watson is, he's the lead of video series for a company called Carwell. And all he does, and this is almost embarrassing to admit, and considering I'm a micromobility nerd, but all he does is like drag races of different cars. And I happen to spend a lot of time watching drag him drag racing cars, zero to hundred or doing quarter miles. But then he came out and said, oh, and well, actually, you know, I spend all my time. I drive an Audi RS6. I have all these things. I'm a petrol head. But when I'm in London, this is the most viable way for me to get around. And he went through and did a whole review of the Go Cycle, which was a great, it was a great review. And, and I think about it from the buyer's perspective of going like, well, here's someone who I trust who's in, you know, he's got a, he's got a name. And generally speaking, Matt's going to be straight up and straightforward about what he, what he thinks of stuff. And, um, and it's enough for, I imagine, a lot of people to go, well, I might not be able to get to a dealer to be able to see this, um, but I trust people to be able to do that. And I don't think that existed even five years ago. Yeah, you're right. And something's changed for us in that we have consistently gotten a little bit better at servicing and customer support and everything every year. We're not perfect. But, you know, we've got some pretty brutal and pretty honest Trustpilot reviews out there. And people can see that, you know, we're at like a four, four and a half or four point six or something. You know, it's a genuine four, four and a half, four point six. You know, I'm involved in pretty much all of the reviews that with our team, which I feel, you know, very strongly about to make sure that we, we're always grounded with our, with our customers and we know where we are. Whereas I think there are some other companies that, you know, have, have dived into the kind of direct sales panacea and have found that, you know, stuff goes wrong. You know, the simplest things like I my bicycle arrived and the paint chipped. I want a new one. You know, you know, there are some real practical challenges where, you know, we've taken just a much more uh, conservative approach to growing the business stably, where we've got dealers and direct and our own service, you know, trying to de-risk all of that side of things so that we can offer the best overall customer service possible to support our growth. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, a, you know, you, you, your point around being a good, steady, you know, as you say, good and steady trying to build a business and all that sort of stuff. It's quite different to a lot of what we've seen, certainly in the shared micromobility world. Um, 
And you, you, you kind of mentioned, you know, you'd looked at leasing and renting, et cetera. Yes. So, so yeah. like, have you ever had anybody come along and say, oh, I would like to do something in the yeah. shared space as well? And what yeah. was your sort of response yeah. to that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the challenge is we are fundamentally, I'm still a, I've had this term that I've said in, in sometimes, you know, sharing is not caring. And we breathe quite strongly in the pride of ownership and what comes with that. And when you're looking at a brand like GoCycle and a product like GoCycle, and it's not, it's not inexpensive, it's a premium product. Mm-hmm. If you then find out that that's not the rental bike of, I don't know, some city municipality, it's just kind of a, a betrayal of the customer relationship. I, I don't know. I, want to, I don't want to say it would be a sellout for the company, but it certainly would be a completely different business model. And I don't think it's uh, done in connection with, with what we're doing. Uh, you know, we're offering a, a fantastic product. The pride of a pride of owning one is there. The problem is also it's a completely different design brief. I mean, we're designing a lightweight product, right? Something that you need to take care of and service and maintain. Where a shared shared model is just it's a completely different design brief. You want something that never breaks, mm. that can be abused, that actually the design abuse is a, the design case is about vandalism, you know, and things like that. So we've tried occasionally, we've done with we've had some success with niche hoteliers, right? They're offering go cycle as part of, you know, if you check into our hotel, we'll give you a go cycle to ride around town to visit the sites. There have been some niche tour companies that have used electric bikes to do tours. But even those are, you know, the e-bike, the problem with the, like a Segway tour is you can't really get separated from the group that easily. I mean, Segways are quick, but you know, they're more like a a bunch of geese that gaggle together, right? But if you're on e-bikes, you can very quickly have someone way ahead on the road. You know, and it's it's maybe not the greatest for for tours. I don't want to say not never, but, you know, I'm not sure it's the ideal format for a city tour, Mm. especially if you're on the road. You know, you're not allowed to ride on the sidewalk. So if you're on the road, you know, you've got other things you got to watch out for, like traffic and everything. You can't be listening to some guy telling you about a famous building. Now, look to your left and, you know, crash. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the other one that we've kind of some people have looked into is the kind of it's not really a, a shared service but it's i mean the the classic sort of rental fleet our early days with that you know the kickstand on a go cycle is designed in a very cool way it comes forward and it sits underneath the frame so it molds with the frame and it's very very neat way of doing it but just because the kickstand moves forward that's pretty much the reason why we will never do fleets uh, and rentals because every single one of those kickstands will probably be broken at some point in time because yeah. everyone thinks that a kickstand goes backwards. Right. So when the yeah. kick, they rock it forward, and when it doesn't go up, they'll rock it forward harder. And if it's not their bike and they don't care, they'll push it harder until something breaks. Right. You know, and for the operator, it's like, whew, geez, you know, I've got a bunch of broken kickstands. Which, which, believe it or not, is actually like a very material problem for operators. Totally. Yeah. Simple, but if you don't have a kickstand, you're done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's like you'd think it's a tiny little piece of equipment and, and it costs, you know, $4 or something like that. But it, it, it means that the whole $700 vehicle 
is effectively unusable because people don't like to have a thing that doesn't stand up in the beginning. You yeah. Know? They don't want I to mean, go and scoop it off the street. It's it's yeah. so it's so it's one of these, you know, the hygiene factors of a business. The whole sharing model also kind of is a complete antithesis to the no compromise approach that I've taken, which is why do you want to compromise and come out of work and be fearful that your shared e-bike is not waiting for you there and someone else has shared it, you know? You want a no compromise approach. You want the go cycle under your desk. And when you want to leave, you're leaving, you know, mm. absolutely no yeah. compromise. You know, so it's, it's like nice. if you go in a shared model, it's like that's just a different vehicle and it's a different kind of philosophy. So the one final part that I wanted to, to follow up with you on is, as you mentioned in the beginning, your latest model has Bluetooth. And I'm curious about, you know, the some We've of the always higher had Bluetooth, end... but uh, it's low energy Bluetooth. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, low energy Bluetooth. I, I guess the thing that I'm thinking about is Reese and Mueller, I know, Van Moof, a lot of these sort of higher end e-bikes are now offering connectivity. And one of the, you know, the features of Van Moof, which I, I think is ingenious in its own little way, is the, the idea that you can have tracking and then if your bike gets stolen, they'll go and help you track it down. From your perspective, have you ever looked at adding cellular or some level of other connectivity beyond Bluetooth? And how did, what was the thinking? We through? were thinking about this in 2012. And the right. reason that we haven't put it on is there's costs, okay? So you have to get a model where not everyone maybe wants that cost, okay? The, the other challenge with them, the fundamental challenge is that when the thing gets stolen, we, uh, I mean, we have some form of tracking on ours. Like for instance, if a go cycle gets stolen and the thief or the next owner that bought it from the thief tries to connect with the app, we'll kill it, okay? and mm. we'll get the location if they're providing a location to us. But the problem you always have is that you can never introduce the customer to the thief, right? You can never say, hey, we found your go cycle. It's right here. Go over there, take some friends and wrestle it out of the thief's hands. Yes. Or, you know, we've had loads of experience where we're not talking to the thief. We're talking to the person that paid cash and bought it from the thief. And you know, if you put the customer and this new owner of the customer's bike together in a room, they will probably kill each other, you know? So <laughs> you can never do that. So that's still the challenge. And even with Van Moof, you know, they talk about their bike hunters or whatever. You know, I don't know the details of, of how they actually do it. I, I think there are very few circumstances where they actually discover the product. I, I know they had a the, the bit of a scandal with one of their videos where they actually kind of set it up. It wasn't actually real. But that's still the challenge. Having said that, where I see e-bike, I said we're in e-bike 3.0, I think e-bike 4.0 is like, it's like this total connected thing, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether it's GPS or GSM, you've got kind of the Tesla format where, you know, you can force upgrades to the product. You can notify the customer if there are any service issues they need to take care of. You're going to offer them, you know, that ability to track but still, you know, the police still don't really care. And that's nothing against the police. It's probably government policy. But we've contacted the police many, many times. Hey, we've got a stolen product. Here's its exact location. Can you go and get it? And they won't. And so, you know, bike theft and that sort of thing is still a low priority for agencies. So we see it more in something that sort of connectivity would be more beneficial to the customer in terms of keeping their product tuned up 
making sure it's running properly. You can detect whether there are faults that are about to happen with AI and things like that. So, yep. you know, that's, that's where we'll be going. We, we've got it all on the drawing board. It's about timing. You know, we've got a great product pipeline for the future coming. We've got so much new stuff on G4, adding GPS, would, you know, is not needed for, for us at this yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Well, look, Richard, just thank you so much for your time. And also just hats off to you, because I know this has been a very long journey for you and clearly been, as you say, maybe 10 years too early for some of this stuff. And I'm just, I'm really excited to see, hopefully that the world is starting to wake up to what you've been trying to do for a, for a long time and that you'll see success with it too. Thank you very much. Thank you. And if folks want to try and track you down, how do they find out details about GoCycle? So it's assume gocycle.com yeah the website gocycle.com we've got our facebook page twitter i think we're one of the few companies in the world that still has a telephone number on their website so you can actually <laughs> call a person <laughs> good excellent well thank you thank you very much and we'll, we'll have you back on hopefully in the future to talk about some future other developments the products that you're about to launch too awesome thank you very much for having me cheers